From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting, though, with another announcement that was made earlier today. We heard from Vancouver's Mayor Ken Sim introducing the Park Board Transition Working Group. This is a group that will oversee the transition in managing Vancouver's parks and recreation. And we were very clear before we went to the polls on May 25th. There, you know, said it uh, uh, to a a reporter that's uh, typing on her phone right now. Uh, But basically, uh, yeah, uh, we, we told everyone before for uh, the election that we were going to try to fix uh, the uh, uh, the structure of the elected park board. And if it didn't work, we would go to the province um, to make the changes. And uh, it's very clear that all we need to do is make a charter change um, in the Vancouver Charter. And, um, you know, that, that's the process. It's pretty uh, spelt out there. That was in response to a question, is this legal and uh, how quickly could this happen? Well, joining me now to talk more about this announcement is Sarah Kirby-Young, Vancouver City Councillor. Councillor, thank you so much for making the time today. Hi there, Jill. Thanks for having me. Well, with the announcements of this Park Board Transition Working Group, what does that actually mean with, as far as moving ahead with dissolving the board and making it part of the city? Yeah, so this group is formed uh, to help guide the transition uh, through the process, and Marathon announced the members of that group today. It's a diverse um, uh, group of individuals that have ties into the sports community, um, past park board commissioners like uh, Commissioner Catherine Evans, folks from BC Diving or the Venue Football Club. So really to um, help guide us through the transition in terms of addressing all the considerations that need to be um, thought through um, and to help us um, identify how do we best ensure that uh, stakeholder relations and lines of communication uh, remain open. Um, and so that's, it's a transitional group that will do their work uh, while the province is working on the charter changes that we have requested to the Victory Charter that will enable that motion to move forward with the dissolution of the current elected park board. Right. But when the mayor first announced this, that he was taking these steps and that he wanted the the park board saying it wasn't working, it didn't work having two different groups doing the same thing. There was a a lot of overlap there. When he first announced that, didn't the province come back and say, "Okay, we get what you want to do, but you need to come up with a plan and then we'll figure it out from there. So isn't this part of that plan? Yeah, and we also heard from, uh, as the announcement today, from our city manager, uh, Mr. Mockery, and he spoke to the three issues that the province has brought forward. Uh, one was really around engagement with the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh, so provide an update on that. We have a letter of support from Musqueam Nation, uh, very positive ongoing conversations with Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh, who are working through their process with their councils. Um, I think the second thing that was raised by the province was um, clarification on the ownership of land, and the city manager confirmed that dissolution of the elected board would not have any impact on that. The park board doesn't actually own the land. All of the assets are owned by the city of Vancouver, so there's no change that would happen there. Um, The third question that was raised by the province was about the future of workers at the park board. Again, the park board doesn't actually employ the staff. All of those staff are city of Vancouver employees. That's where they get their paycheck from. Uh, So their status remains the same. We've had great conversations uh, with the unions. All of those uh, commitments remain in place. Um, And we're not expecting changes in staff. If there's any um, overlap in roles, then we'll manage anything through vacancies or attrition. Um, And as the city manager said today, expect that this will actually create more opportunities for the staff. So 
those are the sort of the three things um, that we updated on. Um, some there'll be operational considerations as the process unfolds, but um, really the focus of the group will be on helping us to transition some of the, um, as I said, some of the logistical pieces and making sure that um, there are any important considerations that we don't tackle. And interesting when looking at staffing numbers, and I know that that was a question put to the mayor and to Mr. Mockery earlier this morning, because it does seem if, if one of the main things that the mayor has said is the, the redundancy and the doubling up of of two groups, you have to get permission from the park board, they have to get permission from the city and, the, and those two things. It, it seems if there's that big redundancy, then wouldn't there be an overlap in, in staff members and employees that, but, but you're confident there is, there are places, there will be a spot for everybody. There won't have to be any layoffs. Yeah, that's uh, what our city management team are telling us. And in fact, we think this could create some more opportunities for people. We actually hold a number of vacancies right now. It can be tricky uh, to find specialized staff, such as Arborist, for example, and a lot of those other really important frontline roles. So um, as as we said, uh, there's no shortage of work to be done. And the work of the elected, or sorry, the work of the park board goes on. Like none of that changes in terms of needing the community center workers and um, the lifeguards at pools and the arborists and um, the folks from the different outside workers, for example. Uh, what does change is that you don't have a, a separate kind of governance layer of having a separate elected park board. So you don't have two different bodies that are responsible. You just have one with council. Do you have any concerns about what is happening now as we're kind of in this state of waiting for the province, the need for that legislative change if the province does approve this? Even this week at the park board over a motion that had to do with a sensory and inclusive park and more sensory and inclusive parks in the city. There was there was fighting over that. There were there were people that were upset, commissioners upset over an amendment to that. The park board now has to go back and ask the city for five million dollars for this. Is it working as a functional, can it continue or can it work as a functional board, a functioning board and and a board that is making good decisions while all of this is going on? Well, I think you put your finger on one of the challenges is that we've had a number of boards over successive terms that haven't been functional and there's been political differences. I think right now you have some individuals who understandably are emotional about the change and that might be clouding judgment about making decisions that are really in the best interest of park users. So I think the focus for us is on trying to move this forward as efficiently and as quickly as we can. We're really committed to running the parks well. I'm a former park board chair and commissioner um, and you know I thought long and hard about this change and I do think that it's a good thing so that we can best deliver the park services for Vancouver. So I think our job right now is to move through the transition because uh, it can be a you know a, a challenging period for people uh, when you have change, uh, people have questions. We want to make sure we get all of those answered, but uh, we're going to try to move this forward as effectively as we can. Can you promise people as well that if this change goes ahead and the board is dissolved, it becomes an arm or it becomes as part of city council, will the core things that are missing be done? And I know the mayor has mentioned some of these in in a couple of his news conferences as well, but the bathrooms at Spanish Banks, when I was there in the summer, the lifeguards there were asking people as they walked by, please, please reach out to the park board. It's been like this for months. There's no water. There's porta potties. Uh, There's a piece that a stretch of the seawall by Granville Island that has been uprooted by by tree roots. It's completely hazardous. It's been like that for about a year. Will will things like that actually start being addressed? 
Yeah, I've heard that too about a lot of the delays on things that don't have to happen. Uh, large long-term capital projects, obviously we have to gather funding for those. But I think our intention is to improve and get through some of those bottlenecks. And we'll develop the short, medium, and the long-term strategies. I can give you an example. One of the things that I hear about as I walk about town, I have a lot of people coming up to me, say, in the festival and events industry. They're like, this is a great change because we don't have to go to the park board for two different sets of permits and two different permit processes to have our events. Think about something like the Celebration of Light. They're using the beach. They're using the roadway. They have to go to the city for a permit. They have to go to the park board. Um, and, yes, things like uh, some of that overdue maintenance we've seen a lot of frustration on. We have some city work that we wanted to move forward that were delayed waiting for approval from the park board. So it's absolutely the intention to break that down. Um, we wouldn't be doing this if we didn't want to deliver better service for everybody. Is there a timeline on when you would like to see or when this could possibly happen? Yeah, we're hopeful. It's uh, it's really up to the province and because it requires the legislative changes to Vancouver Charter that we're working closely with them on now. Um, we anticipate that that will be in the spring, um, but the province will determine the exact date based on their legislative calendar. We will be uh, following along for sure. Councillor Kirby Young, thank you so much. Great to have you back on the show. Always good to, to join you. Thank you so much. Talking about the announcement made by Vancouver's Mayor Ken Sim introduced the Park Board Transition Working Group earlier today. This is the group that will oversee the transition into managing Vancouver's parks and recreation. And this is something that still needs the province to okay it. It would need a legislative change to alter the Vancouver Charter. And that would, in fact, lead to the dissolving of the elected Park Board and then bringing it under the uh, umbrella of the city. A couple of things the mayor said earlier today, saying this step is long overdue and uh, something that he has said before as well, saying the current system is broken and no amount of tweaking will fix it, that bringing parks and recreation under the direct oversight of city council aligns us with how it is done in every other city in the country. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit more about this is Laura Christensen, who now sits as an independent park board commissioner. Thank you so much for making the time today. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me on. Uh, what is your response to it? Not a huge surprise that the mayor has announced this, but as somebody who is a sitting park board commissioner, what is your response to this? You know, um, I think this is, is, you know, not again, not a surprise, but this is really an undemocratic move by the mayor. You know, this was not a campaign promise. He does not have a mandate uh, to abolish the elected park board. Um, you know, had he, had he campaigned on this, you know, it might have been more understanding. But this is not something that he campaigned on. Um, I was involved in the campaign as part of ABC, and abolishing the park board was never on the on the table uh, during the campaign, and never something that I was involved in. And had I known that he was planning to abolish the park board, I would not have run with ABC. Um, you know, and I think there's recently the mayor's budget task force report came out a few days ago, and there's a lot of concerning things in there about selling off assets, which could include park board assets uh, such as community centers and parks. And I think that's that's really concerning that, you know, between abolishing the park board and this budget task force coming out with these findings really points to is the mayor planning to sell off or privatize, um, you know, city assets that are, that are currently under the park board. Uh, he did, though, originally he did say that he his plan would be to get rid of the park board and then and then changed his mind. And I know when he's been asked about that more recently, uh, his response is that uh, he, he did say that he did change his mind, then decided to run park board commissioners uh, like yourself. And, and it was only after that he said that he realized it couldn't be fixed. Yeah, I think that's really you know disingenuous of him to... 
you know, get, gather a whole group of, of people to run within his party and essentially lie to them saying that he was going to keep the park board and then, you know, flip-flop and flip-flop again on this decision about the park board. Um, so, you know, I think it's really, I'm personally quite offended that he asked me to run as part of his party and then abolishes the park board, you know, without really any notice to me um, or my colleagues. Do you think the park board is doing a good job? You know, I think the park board is in a really challenging spot. Um, you know, it's being chronically underfunded. Uh, we are, compared to other cities, receive the least municipal funding, uh, you know, compared to New York or Toronto. Um, and, you know, they're, they're working with such a limited budget, and I think in that respect they're doing a great job. Um, they are working uh, with, with limited resources, and they you know, really have quite high service levels given the, you know, limited resources that they have. Um, you know, I think that there's always more that they could do. And I think that the mayor could really provide more funding to the park board and we could achieve so much more. Uh, you know, the mayor has pointed to a lot of crumbling assets, the Kitts Pool or the Aquatic Centre. Um, those are actually under city management. The, the, the city is responsible for maintaining those assets and the city has really dropped the ball on maintaining those. And that's why they're falling apart. It's not the park board. Um, it's, it's chronic underfunding. A couple of things you said. When you compare it, though, to New York and Toronto, those cities don't have elected park boards, though. No, and I think that's, that's part of the problem is that, um, you know, the, 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 with the park board being a separate entity, we, we are dependent on receiving our funding um, from, from city council, which means that the city can very easily remove funding from, from city park board, uh, which limits, you know, what we can do. Whereas if it was within the city, you know, they, they then would be more accountable uh, to having to fund, fund those resources. Uh, instead, they've been chronically cutting funding from the park board, and the park board has been suffering and trying to make up for those deficits. And when you mention the, the things that, um, and I know the mayor has mentioned these as well, the, this, the side of the aquatic center, the facade that, that fell off. Um, another thing that he mentions, and anybody that's been to Spanish banks will know that because of a water main break, there has not been water in the washrooms. There, there have been porta-potties set up that are less than ideal. Uh, so, but if you're saying those are under city management, but those are in parks, so how is the park board involved? So it, several, many, many years ago, those were under park board jurisdiction, so those would have been park board responsibilities. However, um, the, the city council at the time took over the management of those assets in, in names of a, in, in um, the argument of efficiencies to take those over. And that's really the, the, the crux of the problem is that they took those over and then have poorly managed them since. Um, so, you know, Park Board is responsible for the, you know, the programming at the Aquatic Center and the staff that work there, um, but they are not directly responsible at this time for the, the maintenance of the facility itself. That's under the city jurisdiction. Hmm. So that seems like that, that's not the most efficient model either. Shouldn't it be one group or one, one entity that's in charge of, I mean, if you're in charge of the programs inside and the outside wall falls off, I mean, who is that helping? Yeah, I mean, it really, you could you could make that argument, um, but you also need to, to see that the, the city has many priorities, and, you know, are they going to look at what's more important, the side of the aquatic center, or, or is, it, is it housing? Um, and, you know, they have a lot of conflicting priorities, and the benefit of the park board is they have, you know, one priority, which is parks and recreation, and, you know, they that is the number one priority for them, and they're, they're uh, dedicated to maintaining that. Um, you know, I think that there could be better collaboration between the city and park board in terms of managing assets. 
I think there there could be efficiencies to be gained by, you know, centralizing maintenance perhaps. Um, but that really requires collaboration between the city and the park board. And I think that could be definitely better. Mm. And what about the the issues of and groups that put on festivals or uh, concerts in parks have brought this up as well, saying that it is two separate entities that you have to go to for permits and that there's a lot of redundancy there? Yeah, I mean, we can definitely streamline that process further. And actually, that is some of the things that we are working on at the park board right now is streamlining the process for getting permits for events. Um, however, you know, we, we see this come up where we need to approve events. And if it's the city who's, who's approving them in, in parks, um, you know, are they going to have the time to listen to resident concerns? Um, the park board is there for the purpose of listening to the public. Um, you know, we, we have a lot more time on our hands to gather public feedback on these things and review, you know, is this event uh, reasonable or not? Um, so, you know, there's, there's definitely benefits to having two bodies of oversight in that you have two pairs of eyes to, to look at things and, um, you know, review if they're reasonable or not or good for the city. Where do you see things going from here in that it seems like it's it's full full ahead as far as the mayor and when, when he was asked about this, uh, saying that he would, uh, that he's excited for this next phase and he would like to see this happen uh, pretty well as soon as possible. What, where do you see things going for the park board in its current state? So in terms of um, the province uh, approving this, I think one, one key part that hasn't been addressed is the support of, of the Muskegon, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh uh, First Nations. Um, I think there's definitely more consultation needed to gain their support. And I think that's a, a huge part that the mayor has perhaps uh, overlooked or has simplified. And I, I think that there needs to be more consultation done um, before that, that can go forward with the province. Um, from my perspective at the park board, it's really business as usual. I want to focus on parks and recreation services for the city. Um, so whether whatever happens with the, the province, my goal really is to, to keep up the good work at the park board, um, continue to build our assets and, and provide good services to the city. All right, Laura Christensen, we'll have to leave it there for today, but I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me on. The administrator, the, the, the board, want to work with the city of Surrey to ensure that the transition goes uh, as smoothly as possible. Uh, the, the budget was done in the context of Surrey's own uh, three-year um, policing budget. And so this idea that there needs to be, you know, uh, tax increases because of the transition, the budget shows the path forward in a way that uh, uh, is responsible, uh, respectful of, uh, of Surrey's uh, budgeting, uh, their, their three-year uh, fiscal plan as it relates to policing, and that there's not a need for, for tax increases, which the, uh, the mayor has been talking about, and that they want to work cooperatively with the, uh, the city of Surrey. All right, that was Mike Farnworth, Solicitor General, Public Safety Minister, speaking earlier today and talking about the numbers that were released in the Surrey Police Services budget. So let's bring in the Surrey Police Board Administrator. Mike Sear is with us on the line now. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Good afternoon, Jill. It was a, a, an announcement, or, or you you put forward the plan earlier today. A lot of numbers in this plan, and I know uh, a lot of attention is being pay, paid to the overall numbers. So 
$337 million, the total total budget, the budget that you have put forward for 2024 for the Surrey Police Service coming in at $142 million. Does that, in fact, do what the public safety minister just said? That is a budget that doesn't mean Surrey residents are facing double-digit property tax hikes to pay for this. Yeah, I think what's important to note is that this budget was developed in careful consideration with the Strategic Implementation Advisor, Deloitte uh, Canada, you know, their cooperation reviewing, uh, you know, our finance team, and looking at all the monies that are available to the City of Surrey. Um, so at, at the end of the day, just to provide some context, $214 million is set aside in the financial plan for Surrey from 2023 to 2027. They have $214 million for policing for 2024. Um, additionally, there was an $83 million that was approved uh, in their third quarter to, for the policing transition, $10 million that we've so far underspent on the transition fund, and another $30 million if uh, you include the money from the province that is readily available, uh, would take this up to $337 million. And as I said today, um, the $141.5 million, that's 42% of that. And, you know, these budgets are shared between us and the RCMP. And as the RCMP, uh, you know, scales down and SPS scales up, those budgets will be able to, you know, stabilize and fluctuate together and work, you know, uh, simultaneous. And you mentioned the money from the province. So that's the $30 million. That one's, is it, that's the one that's up to $150 million? That's correct. $150 million over five years so that the, the Surrey can access, uh, you know, $30 million, of course, in 2024. You also talked a lot about the number of officers and where the money will go as far as hiring, uh, hiring 180 additional officers, 135 will be experienced officers from elsewhere in Canada, 45 will be the additional new recruits. Does that get to the complement? Does that get to the number that is needed to police a city the size of Surrey? No, not yet. Um, so the numbers, so the overall strength for 2024 that city is authorized for policing is 785 police officers. And, you know, I'm good on them. They recognize that Surrey's growing and they've added, uh, as part of their financial plan, an additional 25 uh, officers up until 2027. So SPS, um, you know, with the hiring plan, with the budget being approved, would have an authorized strength by the end of the year of 526. So that's about 67%, about a two-thirds of the overall policing force within Surrey. Um, and uh, so, um, but yeah, the, the budget, or sorry, the number of police officers, SPS has said that they're going to mirror the staffing levels of what the RCMP uh, have been approved to staff to, uh, and that will continue moving forward. And and maybe this comes, if, if you can put on your policing hat, maybe a bit more than your administrator hat. But when we when you look at those numbers and, and hiring 135 officers, as you said, experienced officers that would come from across Canada, do those officers exist? Are, are there officers that are ready to leave their post, to leave whatever force they're with now and come to Surrey? Well, I think it's first important to note that you know, we need the budget to be approved um, so that the hiring can commence uh, immediately and so we can stay on pace. The, uh, the number of uh, experienced police officers equates to roughly 12 officers uh, per month. And, you know, when you look at that and when you look at hiring from across Canada, 
Missouri is a fantastic city and a great place to, you know, be a police officer. And um, it is a demanding market. Uh, there is no question about that. But I can tell you that uh, Surrey is an attractive place to, to come and, and work. And a lot of people who live there want to be part of that. And a lot of people are waiting to, uh, to be, uh, you know, part of the Surrey Police Service. So um, it, it's, you know, a challenge for everyone, but it can be done. Uh, but again, we, you know, we need to start moving uh, with an approved budget and with the hiring plan. So you presented this budget uh, back in, uh, uh, when did you present it? Was it October? Uh, November 30th. It was provided to uh, the city. And have you heard anything back at this point? Uh, so the city uh, did reach out the financial manager, uh, sorry, the uh, city manager and some of his senior staff, and, and they had uh, Jess McDonald, the senior um, implementation advisor, and the uh, finance team from Surrey Police Service went and presented uh, on the budget, uh, addressed questions and concerns. Um, beyond that, um, no, we've, I have had no um, direct correspondence. We're waiting. Um, you know, certainly would hope that some decisions are made on the budget sooner than later. Um, as I said earlier today, the, the city technically has until under the uh, you know charter under up till May uh, 15th to uh, finalize a budget for all areas of, of Surrey. But um, but waiting that long would certainly impact the transition and in impacting the, in slowing the transition down. Um, it, it does increase costs, certainly. I think you said during the, your news conference as well, was it that the city also has uh, or, or changes can be made to this budget up until March 1st? Yeah, so certainly we, uh, I can, you know, in the board, we um, make changes to the budget up until the provisional budget up until March 1st. That's correct. And do you anticipate, I mean, could, could that be something that if the city did come back and said, well, we, we get this, but maybe, maybe tweak something here or, or this, are there places you think where changes could be made without having a, a big impact or without changing the budget itself in a huge way? I mean, as a budget stands, it is a budget that's built on building the transition effectively, efficiently, moving this transition forward in a positive way. Um, you know, th- there is not a lot of room for changes, I mean, other than some of the staffing, um, you know, uh, assessments that have been made. So, you know, unfortunately, if the city does not approve this budget, uh, you know, in a timely manner, and we're getting into, you know, late into the spring, well, there, there is potential that some of those hiring, um, you know, numbers that have been provided may not be able to be attained, which would, you know, significantly disrupt, like I said, the transition and would slow down the transition. So, um, you know, overall, I do not see any changes to the budget, certainly no changes um, moving the budget higher. Um, and I really would hope that we can get together, sit down and, uh, and move this budget and move this transition forward. And looking at some of the numbers, and this might be going into the details a little bit too far, but I, I know Richard Zussman mentioned this in his news reporting on this as well, that if you look at the, the line items, one of the items being information, technology, systems and capital, the numbers seem to really vary in that the 2023 forecast is about 3.7 million, and then it goes up to 12.5 million for the twenty twenty forecast. Why is there such a range there? Yeah, so I, I think it's, I've said it before, the 2023, um, of course, uh, you know, mayor and a, a majority council had uh, advocated to not move forward with the transition and essentially SPS went into a status quo budget. Um, the transition slowed significantly to almost 
a complete stop. And some of those transition uh, phases that were necessary to move forward um, uh, came to a, almost a complete standstill. So that's why you're seeing a difference in that budget. Um, so the, the money there, and a lot of those are one-time um, budgets. Once the IT system is built and the infrastructure is built, those costs to the budget will start to go down, which is a good thing. Um, you know, we need to build the infrastructure for this department, and like I said, 2023 was a was a status quo year, and unfortunately, uh, did not move the transition positively forward. But this budget is about you know building the team, building the infrastructure, and and continuing to move the transition forward, which is again is is clearly stated in law in October that SPS is to be the police of jurisdiction in Surrey, and uh, as the administrator. You know, my job is to you know ensure that SPS is prepared to move, continue to move in that direction. And one other number, yeah, you you said earlier that the so the transition will take another two point five years to complete. How important is it to stick to that schedule with the numbers that are in this budget? Yeah, I mean, this budget is for 2024, but this budget gets that transition well and on way to to move towards that two and a half year mark. Um, like I said, any delays in being able to hire people because you know we're, we're unable to approve budgets will will prove to to slow down that transition. But you know, again, um, the strategic implementation advisor Jess McDonald, who's working you know collectively with all stakeholders to to move this transition forward in a positive way. Um, you know, everyone, the RCP, SPS, everyone is you know, on the same page about ensuring the community safe, public safety. But, you know, this transition is, is certainly um, been slow. It's been long. And, and the longer the transition takes, uh, the, certainly the more that is costing. And so, like you said, the city has until May 15th to either approve or finalize this. Uh, you would like to see that happen sooner. Is the hope then by putting these numbers out there and uh, showing the public, uh, showing Surrey residents what this budget looks like, what the numbers are, the hope that that could potentially pressure the city or could get uh, some movement on this? Yeah, I mean, you know, first off, we have a standing offer with the city where, you know, we will always be prepared, you know, myself and, and team to come down and to, to present the numbers, to answer questions, to, you know, um, discuss how the SPS budget aligns with the overall policing budgets that are, are set for the city of Surrey. Um, but there's been so much discussion about the numbers and a lot of time there hasn't been the background to, and the context for people to make good and informed decisions. And for me, it's important for transparency, for openness, to be able to share the numbers, be able to explain the numbers, uh, and help people understand um, the cost of, of policing in Surrey, the cost of the transition, and, uh, and hopefully, as I say, move this transition forward as, like I said, it's, it's required in law in 2024. Mike Sear, we'll leave it there for today. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, Jill. Thanks for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. Well, we are going to talk more about a story that was first reported in the Globe and Mail. And I know Simi Sarah was talking about this on her program earlier today as well. The Globe and Mail first reported this pretty major development on Wednesday, uh, citing two sources that there were five members of Canada's 2018 World Juniors hockey team. They have all been told to surrender to police and are set to face charges in in relation to an alleged sexual assault 
that took place several years ago. Well, somebody who has been paying close attention to this and who has joined this show before to talk more about it is Member of Parliament for New Westminster Burnaby, Peter Julian. And Peter Julian joins me again now. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Glad to be with you. I know we have talked to you in the past. Uh, You have been very vocal about the need for reform. And this uh, was after some some pretty big allegations and revelations, uh, revelations, sorry, of what's happening within Hockey Canada. What are your thoughts now after hearing what was first reported in the Globe and Mail that we now know five members of the 2018 World Juniors hockey team have been told they must surrender to police and uh, they could face or are set to face charges in relation to that alleged sexual assault in London, Ontario? My thoughts are with the victim. She has had to wait for so long for for justice. It appears that finally justice is being being served. But the the reality is, uh, for her, it is after that uh, the the allegations are horrific of of uh, a gang sexual assault and the fact that uh, initially Hockey Canada. Uh, really covered it up with a non-disclosure agreement rather than treating it with the importance uh, that it needed to be treated with. I, I think it's it saddens me that we have national sports organizations like Hockey Canada that let ha- have let down victims and have let down the public and and athletes as well. And we have had a federal government, quite frankly, that has not stepped up in the last couple of decades. Uh, it, that has not put in place and obliged national sports organizations to ensure that there's safe sports in Canada for athletes, for the public, for everyone. Do you think anything has changed given the parliamentary hearings that were held? And I think many people would agree. We're talking about members of the 2018 team and this just happening now as far as being set to face charges. Has anything, do you think, changed though or will anything change given the the hearings that were held and, and what came to light in those hearings? I, I think so. I think things have changed. The, the public certainly is far more aware. You'll recall that Hockey Canada stonewalled on questioning on, on this issue, on how the victim was treated, on the non-disclosure agreement, on, on the cover-up, uh, on the slush fund that was used uh, uh, un, un, unknown to uh, parents who enroll their, their kids in hockey across the country. The reaction from the public was extremely strong. And, and the result was uh, after a few months, uh, despite the stonewalling, uh, the chief executive officer of Hockey Canada and the board were, were forced to step down. That's important because it, it signals that Canadians are not willing to accept sporting systems uh, where there are victims uh, and, and that we need to make sports safe for everyone. And, and as you know, because you, I know you followed this, uh, subsequent to that, we had, uh, we had gymnasts that came to committee. We had a whole variety of Canadian sports uh, athletes that came forward with horrific stories of, uh, of abuse. And, and it is, I, I think, a reckoning for Canadian sports that now, as a, as a country, we're saying no more. We, we, we want to ensure sports are safe for everyone. We want to make sure uh, that there are no further victims of sexual assault or horrific violence in the Canadian sports system. Do you think that that potentially, though, looking at this case, and uh, I know there have been a lot of media outlets, uh, this media outlet included, that have 
connected the dots looking at several players that were members of the 28 team. They've now taken indefinite leaves of absence from their clubs, even though there hasn't been, uh, to my knowledge, any uh, official uh, statements or, or anything official connecting those dots. And and we probably wouldn't in many cases name people until those charges have actually been laid anyway. But given what's happened with this case, do you think potentially there are other alleged victims and other people that will come or could come forward? I, I believe so. I, I think in a sense um, we've, we've had, this isn't the only incident of uh, allegations of horrific sexual assault. And, and as a committee, we heard of uh, numerous other examples. I, I think what this shows is finally it's being taken seriously. When the charges are brought, uh, I, I think that will uh, be a watershed uh, because what it will show is that, uh, uh, that the police now, the, the Crown attorneys are no longer uh, going to uh, simply put put aside when there are allegations of horrific sexual assault that come um, in connection with whatever sport is uh, is there, including hockey. And as a result of that, I think victims can come forward uh, with a greater degree of, of uh, certainty that their stories will actually be heard and that they'll be treated seriously and with dignity. And that's really a big part of it, isn't it? That we do focus so much on the players and uh, like you talked about, the, the reckoning at Hockey Canada, the promises that they would do better. But what we're talking about is, like you said, horrific allegations of a group sexual assault. Uh, uh, an alleged victim has come forward. We're now at the point where uh, there are people set to face charges. But you've got to think, if there are others out there seeing this, they're probably going to be thinking long and hard. Is it worth going forward and putting yourself through this again, given given the attention it's getting and, and how traumatizing that would be? Uh, I, I think that is a, a very valid point. But uh, I, I think it was far worse before. The, the reality is, uh, for that victim, is that she came forward. She immediately tried to, to file a police report. She she tried immediately to to have her her case that uh, uh, horrific sexual assault. The allegations are 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 make make you sick to your stomach. That that she would be treated with respect and dignity and treated seriously. And and that's not what happened. And ultimately, Hockey Canada, as we know now, uh, basically uh, paid out of a out of a secret slush fund, uh, paid with a non disclosure uh, agreement to to keep her silent. And I think it's fair to say after all that she has been through, she will finally be able to see um, the, the people that uh, that she alleges did this to her are, are actually brought forward to, to justice and, and there will be a trial. And, and I think what it shows is that finally uh, Canadians, uh, because of Canadian public pressure, uh, we are now in the judicial system taking this seriously. The police are now taking this seriously. The fact that Hockey Canada, uh, the, the chief executive officer and the board resigned shows that within national sports organizations, at least amongst the parents and, and among the athletes, that there is a real desire to have this treated seriously. Now it's time for the federal government to step up. And, and the federal government needs to implement uh, a policy that ensures that national sports organizations are, have zero tolerance for any cases of abuse and, and that they don't receive funding from the federal government, from Canadian taxpayers, if, if they, they don't have that 
policy in place, zero tolerance, and that it is monitored strictly by the federal government. This is what was a, a gaping hole in all of this, is we've had policies in the past that the federal government has never put into place. It's time now, and, and I think on behalf of all Canadians, we feel as keenly that every kid enro- in, enrolled in a, in a sports organization can feel safe, that the public can feel safe, that, that there's zero tolerance for any type of, of violence or sexual abuse within the Canadian sporting system. And do you think that has changed as far as um, when you talked about uh, the slush fund? And I think a lot of people were quite surprised to hear there was this fund and it was being used as hush money, really, in that uh, having that part of it come to light and get so much attention. Do you think at least that uh, has changed? I I believe so. I I mean, Hockey Canada, you'll recall, and I I know uh, as a a good journalist, you you follow this keenly, that Hockey Canada initially tried to stonewall all of this. And, and it took a series of meetings uh, before the, it, the dam kind of broke. The public opinion became so strong. Sponsors stopped uh, sponsoring Hockey Canada. You saw provincial federations stepping up and, and saying, we're not going to forward money to Hockey Canada with this kind of, of structure in place, with this kind of stonewalling and lack of transparency. Uh, and what it forced was a reckoning at Hockey Canada. And we've seen a similar situation with some of the other national sports organizations. And, and so I, I think what it certainly is, uh, I think, reinforces my sense of, of how Canadians see sports. The Canadians, uh, you know, we, we, we love sports. We thrive in sports. We want sports to be safe for everyone. And I think the public reaction and the depth of that uh, is is something that, all national sports organizations are going to have to take moving forward. But above all, the federal government has to enforce rules that ensure zero tolerance. And that has not happened. It is about, uh, I think, about time that happened. And our committee uh, will be putting forward, um, I'm hoping in short order, a committee report that actually provides the recommendations that come from athletes themselves who have and and others who've made strong recommendations about how the sports system has to change to ensure safe sports, that the government implement those recommendations immediately. Peter, Julian, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much as always. Good to talk to you about this. Good, good to talk to you, and thank you for your, your interest in this subject. It, it's, it's extremely important, as you know, for so many. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.